This is Tim Benal of BenalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 4. Strap yourselves in, my friends, because we are about to take an amazing journey here this week on the program and next week on the program. It is our first two-part episode of Season 4. BOA Audio is finally going to head into previously uncharted waters on our program, an area of mystery once huge in esoterica but now relegated to the peripheral i'm talking about the bermuda triangle we've discussed the bermuda triangle in the past on this program covering weird lost mysteries of esoterica i've gotten a number of emails from people requesting this week's guest on the show and this week's topic the bermuda triangle as a future edition of boa audio to those folks who contacted me your long wait is finally over as today we embark on our journey into the Bermuda Triangle. Our guest is Gian Kassar, author of the outstanding book, Into the Bermuda Triangle. Prepare yourself now, my friends. You're going to be hearing me rave about this book for the next two weeks. It is a must-have book for any serious student of Esoterica. And as is the case with all of our guests, I read the book before we sat down to tape the interview, so you're going to get a very detailed and thorough look here into the Bermuda Triangle with Gian Kassar. In this, our first installment of a marathon conversation, we're going to discuss the history of the Triangle, both as a phenomenon and as an enigma of public interest. We're also going to talk about some of the most famous and infamous Triangle disappearances, like the Carol A. Daring case, Flight 19, Christopher Columbus's Triangle experiences, the Ellen Austin story, the tale of the USS Cyclops, and many, many others. Here in part one, we're also going to cover the government's take on the triangle, Gian's arguments against the various triangle explanations put forth by debunkers, and disappearance flaps in the triangle, most notably the December hex. I'll be honest with you here, my friends, you're about to hear what I think will be looked back on as one of season four's very best episodes, just an amazing conversation with essentially the very top name in Bermuda Triangle research today. He's beyond an expert. He is just amazing. He is Gian Kassar. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Gian Kassar, allow me to unleash the background information. Gian Kassar is recognized as the leading authority in the world on the mystery of the Bermuda Triangle, the man responsible for taking the subject out of the haze of two decades of debunker-driven obscurity and placing it in its actual and often disturbing light. He is the first person to completely document the Bermuda Triangle incident by incident. His research began over 15 years ago, and he has compiled the largest private repository of reports and official maritime documents, containing over 350 cases spanning over two centuries. Over 150 of these disappearances have happened in the last 25 years. Gian's tenacity in finding every scrap available has gained him popular recognition as Generation X's number one investigator of one of the most famous phenomena topics 
long established by the 1970s, uncovering it for an entirely new generation, but now with actual documentation instead of the endless hype and hyperbole of public marketing. He presents his research as all facts must be presented in a mature and objective manner. His website is www.bermuda-triangle.org. Pretty simple, Bermuda-don't forget the hyphen-triangle.org. Check it out, top-notch website. You can get all the great information on Bermuda Triangle there and how to pick up the book. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on November 19, 2008. Gian Kassar, part one of two, talking about Into the Bermuda Triangle on BOA Audio, season four. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Been All of America Audio. I am very excited about this week's guest. I had just checked emails from BOA Audio listeners, and I had actually had one all the way from May of 2007 requesting him to be on the show. And even further back than that, he was on the original list for guests that we wanted to get on season one of Been All of America Audio, but he's hard to get a hold of. He's sort of like the topic of uh, his specialization here, the Bermuda Triangle. He's a little hard to get a hold of. We finally managed to find him. Uh, about a week ago and set this up, and I'm very excited to be talking to him here this week on the show. He is Gian Kassar, author of Into the Bermuda Triangle, an absolutely fantastic book. Folks, stop everything and go out and get this book. Uh, maybe you can listen to the interview and then get it or get it and come back and listen to the interview, but definitely want to pick this up. It's an outstanding book, and uh, I read it a long time ago when it first came out, and then I reread it this past week when I knew I'd be talking to Gian, and uh, I'm just thrilled to have him here on the program to delve into the Bermuda Triangle. So welcome to the show, Gian, and thanks for coming on with All of America Audio. Thank you very much. That's the nicest introduction I ever had. <laughs> <laughs> well, I try, I guess. <laughs> um, and uh, I'll, I should note here, too, that your website is www.bermuda-triangle.org. Don't forget the hyphen, folks. Bermuda-triangle.org. Check that out. That'll have all the information about the book and how you can pick it up. Well, let's start out, Gian, with, uh, you know, the bio, the background. Who is Gian Kassar, and how did you get interested originally in the Bermuda Triangle? Who am I? I'm incredibly boring. <laughs> but I have I, uh, developed a very interesting hobby of uh, investigating the unexplained. Because I was like everybody else during, uh, during what, the phenomena decade of the 1970s, Generation X growing up then, we were inundated with all these mysteries. And then the 1980s started chipping away at all of it and how ridiculous all this was. And the Bermuda Triangle was one of the most popular back in the 70s, I think, uh, probably the most popular of all the phenomena topics, if, it, if you want to label them that way. Mm-hmm. And so... I'd seen all the documentaries as a kid. Then in 1990, I finally got a hold of Berlitz's book. I was in my 20s then. I was so dumb, I didn't even suspect things. <laughs> and uh, so I read it, and I was fascinated by it, and I started reading all the books I could find. And I had to go to all these used bookstores to find them, or the old paperbacks or hardbacks from the 70s. And then I read Cush's book as well, claiming to have solved it all. And... Uh, it, it just uh, it was amazing that nothing past 1978 had been written. This was about uh, 12, 13 years later, so I wondered, well, if it is true, it would still be going on. Yeah. And I started to uh, search uh, newspapers for what had disappeared. Afterward, newspapers are worthless for trying to find information. And then I stumbled upon the National Transportation Safety Board, and I asked them to do a database query for all aircraft posted missing 
not recovered. And I got this huge thing in the mail, the old dot matrix billboard size paper or something. And uh, I've discovered about 40 aircraft disappearances that occurred even during the big hype in the triangle in the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. And they were never in the books. The authors relied only on newspaper accounts, which report very few. And then I did uh, database searches for later time periods, and I found, I think, 75 more aircraft disappearances that occurred in the late 70s and 80s, and then I kept getting these database searches during the 90s. And within a few years, I realized that I had a huge database on ship and aircraft disappearances, and I was hooked. I started getting accident reports from all these briefs, and I ended up with something like 300 cases that were fully documented going back as far as the 18th century. Oh, wow. I even got the uh, the paperwork on the Mary Celeste. I got the actual uh, proceedings of information uh, that was held at Gibraltar and everything. I just became quite a junkie. <laughs> That's how the paranormal world is, it seems. Once you dive into one subject, you get really wrapped up in it and uh, just keep swimming in information, no pun intended. Now, for the people who are living under a rock somewhere, I guess let's just sort of... Uh, Bring them into the loop here on what is the Bermuda Triangle and uh, how did the story evolve, I guess you could say, as a part of popular culture. The Bermuda Triangle is two things. One, it is a physical area. It's the unofficial name for an area off of the southeast coast of the United States. Number two, when they ask what is the Bermuda Triangle, people usually really referring what is the enigma of the area. What is the enigma of the Bermuda Triangle? And that is, it is a place where more ships and aircraft disappear than any other place in the world, and they do so for unknown reasons in fair weather, and usually they leave no trace. That really is required to be a disappearance. There are a few interesting cases that might have left a trace here or there, mm -hmm. but usually it's just complete disappearance. So that is the Bermuda Triangle. All right, folks, now you're all caught up. Now, throughout all this time that you've been researching the Triangle, have you ever been down there and actually gone into the Bermuda Triangle, if you will? Because from reading the book, I was kind of terrified. I don't know if I ever would, but I'd kind of like to, but then, you know, I kind of talk myself out of it. But I'm wondering <laughs> if you've ever gone into the Triangle. You know, yes, I have on a number of occasions. TV then started following me in, which is another nightmare. What's that, TV, you say? Yes, when TV starts following you in and, and wanting to film you doing stuff, then it becomes a real chore because you're stumbling all over them at the same time. Yeah. Now, when you did these uh, expeditions into the Triangle, did anything mysterious happen, or were they usually pretty run-of-the-mill? No, it's it's run-of-the-mill for me. It all depends what you're, you're looking for. Uh, I concentrated off the Florida coast in the Bahamas. Mm-hmm. Uh, or the keys, uh, that's where most of the stuff happens. Uh, there is the phenomenon of the compass pointing in the wrong direction in the Bahamas. That's very well known, uh, even by local fishermen. Why it doesn't get more attention uh, is that most of the navigating in the Bahamas is done by point of land, point of sight, so they're not looking at their compasses that much. Yeah. But it is quite, uh, it does happen quite a bit. The compass will simply point in another direction. That's bizarre. In the book, you say on average four aircraft and approximately 20 boats disappear per year. That's uh, based on this big database you've compiled of uh, what you've, what you've uh, you know, uh, uncovered so far? That is correct. There are a few occasions where, such as in 78 and 79, in each year, eight or nine aircraft vanished. Wow. Uh, 77, nothing vanished. But usually it's around four aircraft and 20 pleasure boats per year. Then once in a while you will get a uh, one or two inter-island charter uh, freighters, coastal freighters, 
the smaller ones, and on occasion, the big jobs. Now, since the publication of your book, which was about four years ago or so, would you say uh, that that uh, average has, you know, maintained? It has uh, decreased dramatically, actually. Really? No aircraft vanished this year that I would really call a true disappearance. The last one that I investigated was for April 2007, and that aircraft vanished. Hmm. And there are a number of reasons. Uh, economy, it really started tanking around 2000 when we had the stock market crash. Mm -hmm. and the more expensive hobbies, like weekend wing flying... Uh, really started giving way. And then 2001, the 9-11, yeah. a lot of people didn't want to start flying out there because they didn't know if they're going to be taken down by missiles or intercepted. Uh, there was that speculation when that uh, crop duster vanished in October 2001 Yeah. Uh, that it was intercepted, actually, but it probably just went down in a rainstorm. But it, it, a lot of flying has cut out. It's quite expensive to maintain even a little aircraft now. Yeah, that makes sense then, that the number would go down. Now, over the course of all these years that you have on, on paper, on documented, would you say, you know, you said sort of like some years a lot disappear and then some years don't. Uh, have you noticed any sort of trend like that, or is it sort of just, uh, you know, random? Yeah, I would say it's random. The times of year, uh, dude, it's mostly uh, it's the Christmas time hex. As it was called decades ago, most aircraft disappear between November and February of the year. Primarily at night, would you say, or is that uh, a, a no? Non either way. Okay. Either way. Interesting. Yeah, and and from what you uh, put in the book, there it seems like these disappearances range the gamut from you know really experienced pilots and and people on ships to you know amateur type people. So the idea that maybe it's you know human error kind of goes out the window when you've got, you know, a seasoned pilot out there that disappears in the triangle. Yes, and there's also other factors. I mean, I'm sure in some of the cases where an amateur pilot went out and was simply never seen again, uh, there could have been pilot error. That does happen. But uh, in cases like Irving C. Rivers, he was coming in for a landing at St. Harry S. Truman Airport, St. Thomas. Mm -hmm. and I believe it was November 3, 1978. And uh, he disappeared while the tower controller, William Kittinger, was watching him. He was coming in for a landing. He was about two miles from touchdown. This was at night. And uh, Bill Kittinger, Al, he prefers to be called Al, uh, switched his view from the tower window, watching the light descend. He looked at the uh, radar, and in between that time, the aircraft was gone. It was not on radar anymore. And so something like that is really not pilot error because they went out and looked and there was no trace even this close to land. Irving C. Rivers had close to 6,000 flight hours. He was a qualified charter pilot. There are others who have had 18,000, 15,000 flight hours. Wow. And they're gone. And so you're talking about highly experienced pilots. Yeah, that's just strange stuff. It's uh, it's bizarre. Now, one thing that I did find interesting, too, in, in the book here is talk a little bit about how even though it's called the Bermuda Triangle, it's not necessarily a triangle. It's sort of an amorphous-type shape. I guess talk a little bit about the, the changing nature of the shape of the triangle. See, Vincent Gaddis coined the term in 1964, and he said, in and about this area, and that was more or less a colloquial uh, name for it, the Deadly Triangle. It goes back to 1952. And... Uh, they're just uh, Bermuda, Miami, San Juan, Puerto Rico, which are the nodal points of the triangle. They're just common you know, points of reference. Mm -hmm. And so that's really why it got its name. But most of the disappearances occur within a few hundred miles north of Bermuda coming to the U.S. East Coast and then around and taking in some of the Gulf of Mexico and then back around to the Caribbean and uh, back up to Bermuda. So it really has no specific shape. It's in that area. 
there is there is no triangle, but it's that is the the core area of the place, so it's still valid to call it the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah, let's sort of talk a little bit about when the triangle became known to people. Now I know sort of weird stuff's been going on there for a while, but what really broke it into the surface of uh, you know mainstream people, the media, and stuff like that, and made it a household term as it is nowadays. Well, attention was popularly drawn out there in 1945 when Flight 19, those five Avengers vanished. Mm -hmm. uh, but it did not have that name or enigma. It started to get that enigma in about 1915 when EVW Jones wrote an article in the Associated Press, and it was uh, he mentioned Flight 19, and then he had some spectacular disappearances in recent years to also add to it, like the uh, two Tudor four aircraft that vanished. And a DC-3 coming in for a landing at Miami in 1948, which vanished. Mm -hmm. And so that began to attract attention uh, to the area as a unique place for disappearances. 1952, George X. Sand wrote an article in Fate magazine calling it the uh, Deadly Triangle. And uh, then it was Vincent Gaddis in 1964, February edition of Argosy, that called it the Deadly Bermuda Triangle. And that really, the, the moniker really hit home with people, and it be, just began to escalate from there until the big fever about the Bermuda Triangle in the 1970s. Yeah, and what do you think caused that fever uh, in the 70s? Just that, you know, more people start hearing about it and, and, and looking into it, or it's just sort of like, it sounds kind of faddish almost, if you will. Well, the anti-establishment movement was part of it. You know, question our past, question the established norm. It created a very big uh, market in the press and publishing to published very unusual books, just like Chariots of the Gods and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so I think that helped people open their minds. And uh, mystery was a big thing. There was the magazines Argosy and, and True and Saga and all those that always had articles like this. Yeah. But Berlitz's book in 1974 really made it the phenomenon because that sold 5 million copies in hardback. And his collaborator was Dr. J. Manson Valentine, who had actually been the NC2 investigator out there for years. And there was much in Berlitz's book that was reminiscent of Chariots of the Gods, of super civilizations of the past. And that, of course, was just uh, the big phenomenon, thanks to Eric von Däniken. Yeah. And we'll get into later on uh, in the interview here, we'll get into sort of how it seems like the triangle's fallen off the radar, no pun intended. Uh, but we'll save that discussion, I guess, till the end of our conversation. I want to talk now about of plane and boat disappearances. Is there sort of like a textbook look at how they disappear? And I guess let's start with that, because I also have a follow-up question about the ships and stuff. But uh, we'll, let's talk first about, you know, just uh, if there's a general uh, pattern to the disappearances. Well, there's a standard disappearance, and then there's the... Bizarre disappearance. <laughs> a standard disappearance would be the boat sails out from the port and is never seen again. Mm -hmm. Or makes a few reports that are just, you know, part of the boat plan. We're here now. Everything's fine. Uh, aircraft, standard disappearance, takes off, files a flight plan. It's heading from here to wherever. Never turns up. A search finds nothing. So that's standard. Uh, the bizarre disappearance has evidence uh, such as the aircraft was on radar. The boat left an enigmatic sudden message. The aircraft might have been observed, uh, such as in one case in 1984, had six people in it. It was flying from Miami to Bimini, and it's, it slowed its airspeed. It was a twin-engine aircraft, so it would fly pretty fast. It slowed to a dangerous level, dangerous speed of 90 nautical miles. 
mm-hmm. plunged off the radar. So they went out looking for it, of course. Well, the only witnesses were actually far away off Bimini Island. The aircraft had not been, the aircraft had only been halfway to Bimini when it plunged off radar. And so the two witnesses at Bimini saw an aircraft plunge into the water a mile or so off the coast, and so they went out and looked out there. It's 18 feet of water, very shallow water. Nothing where this aircraft plunged in there. So what were they seeing? Were they seeing a mirage of the real aircraft plunging into the Gulf Stream 30, 40 miles away? Or was this something totally different? The only evidence we have is that the aircraft slowed at speed. The pilot never contacted uh, the tower, and it simply plunged for unknown reasons and was gone. Another one, like Irving C. Rivers, that's a bizarre one. We have a case of a DC-3 in 1978 on the way to Havana and then just south of the Keys. Everything was fine. It was turning in a direction to avoid uh, any bad weather that might come. It was not even near bad weather, but it was making a detour. And then it was gone from radar. Uh, that would be another strange incident because Coast Guard was out there right away, and a DC-3 would leave a lot of wreckage. And so all these aircraft and boats, I have to specify one thing, they all carried ELTs or EPIRBs. An ELT is an emergency locator transmitter. It will jettison from an aircraft when it impacts. Now, this is an automatic alarm which satellites and other aircraft and ships can follow, and it will pinpoint the area of accident. An EPIRB, mission, uh, Emergency Position Indicating Radio Beacon, will float free from a ship, and it is, essentially follows the same function. In all these incidents, I, I count about 120 aircraft that had ELTs, not one ever left a signal. Wow. Now, these are like the black box type stuff? No, black box would be the recording in the uh, uh, cockpit where the pilot's uh, voice is captured, and you have to find that to get it. Yeah. The ELT will jettison and will send an automatic alarm, uh, okay. an electronic signal indicating emergency in the area of impact. And so none of these have ever left any of that indicating any kind of impact, or the ships never indicated they sank. Hmm. They simply went out and vanished. It really is bizarre. I'm telling you, this Bermuda Triangle kind of spooks me out. And I've interviewed a lot of people on a lot of different subjects, but not too many subjects really uh, give me the chills like this Bermuda Triangle stuff. I think that's why it's subject to a lot of debunking, because it is tangible. And I've, I've told this to many people, How? why is the triangle so different from all the other very famous you know, unexplained like UFOs or Bigfoot or something, you know, Mm -hmm. because it is not subjective. Someone can be very sincere when they claim to have seen a UFO or something, but that's still a subjective report. And, uh, but the ships and aircraft exist in registers, the people, we have their names, and they took off and they are no longer with us. So this is something far more tangible. This is not just a subjective report. Yeah, yeah. On the subject of ships, I wanted to ask you about, and you talk a lot about this in the book, too, not only do ships just go missing, but then some of them seem to turn up with nobody on board. Uh, they're called derelict ships, I think, in the book. Um, uh-huh. I'm not a seaman. So <laughs> I'm not derelict a, or a drifter. But yeah. I'm, I'm not a seafaring person, so I don't That's probably the... I believe that's probably the standard term, but I, I guess I thought you were in Massachusetts. Oh, I am, but I'm in the suburbs of Boston, so we're. <laughs> so I'm you're not a, a seaman at all. No, I'm more of a mall-faring type creature. <laughs> <laughs> but that sort of adds another layer to the triangle because you know, uh, if somebody's up in a plane, if they disappear, you know, the plane can't just uh, come back to port or be turned turn up in the air floating around somewhere. You know, you need a person running the plane. But with the ship, 
uh, people can disappear, and the ship turns up all of a sudden. So it's just sort of like two different areas there going on as far as uh, ship phenomenon in the Triangle, uh, correct? And uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, derelicts are very interesting. If you have just one person aboard, well, they can fall off, and that does happen. But there are cases where there are 11 people on board and the ship is found deserted. There are more recent cases. Uh, there was one where three people, uh, it was, I think, off Virginia. Then another one off Virginia going out uh, beyond the Capes. Uh, the dog was still on board, but the owner was gone. There's quite a few. There's actually one incident where an aircraft was apparently abandoned in midair. Huh. But, How did they, what, did someone fly over or near Yeah, it? they were cruising by it trying to see what was going on, and no one could see anybody inside, and the aircraft eventually just ran out of gas and crashed in the ocean. Wow. That's actually a famous case because a famous football player was it was on board. That famous case where the aircraft took off, what was it, from Louisiana, then was later found off North Carolina, heading out in the Atlantic. Huh, interesting. See, I didn't rehearse that. Was that within the book? No, because it's it's very sketchy. I mean, it really did happen, but I did not really deem it the Bermuda Triangle. It was probably abandoned before it even got there. Hmm. But just there have been cases where there were derelict aircraft. But the boats, uh, Mary Celeste is a famous one. It's not a triangle case. The Carol A. Deering, that's, that's a famous triangle case where uh, uh, the ship had, I believe, 11 on it, and it was seen uh, by the light lighthouse keeper, and they were on board. And then it uh, ground, went aground at Diamond Shoals, and it was completely abandoned. So that kind of stuff does happen. Even modern. That was 1921. There is the case of the Hewarden Bridge, which was a modern freighter, and it was found abandoned in 1978. Wow. And so the ship was, uh, you know, one of those coastal freighters. It was found off the uh, Windward Islands, I believe. Strange. Now, you see, like I was saying, that adds another layer to the mystery. Uh, a skeptical person or a debunker would say, you know, that the ships are just felled by natural situations. But if people are disappearing and the ships are turning up, that adds a whole other element to the story uh, that gets overlooked. There is a case, actually, of an aircraft. I just remembered it found, I believe I did mention this in the book, is found about 1,500 feet down uh, the Florida Straits off Florida. And I think it was... Uh, Graham Hawks, who found it, the well-known salver. And so they examined the aircraft, and uh, there was no remains, of course, in indicating anybody was inside, but it was a small Piper aircraft, and they had their remote sub-automatic robot or whatever open up the door and look inside and everything. And the aircraft had uh, was sitting there, and the key was gone and everything. And you don't ditch an aircraft and then take the key before you get out. Yeah, yeah, I remember that one from the book. Yeah, it was a strange one. And then uh, diving into some of the specifics here of the book, I did want to ask you about a couple of infamous flights that were in the book that sort of piqued my interest. And one of them here uh, was from May 27th, 1962, where the plane disappeared and there was a search for it. Then uh, all that turned up was a mysterious nose wheel that had a lot of elements uh, that, you know, we might get into a little bit later, the Hutchinson effect, but it sounded like sort of how in the book you talk about how the Hutchinson effect combined wood and metal into one thing. Uh, that sort of sounded like what was going on with the nose wheel. Talk a little bit, I guess, about that case and the strange nose wheel that turned up. That was a case of one of the C-133 cargo masters, I believe. It had, I think, like 85, 88, 88,000 gallons of fuel on it. And I don't know how many tons of parts. These are the huge, you know, these are flying freighters. And so it, it disappeared about 25 miles off the coast. 
and they went looking for it, and all they found was the nose wheel, and uh, in the rubber of the tire was embedded basically a cross-section of the entire aircraft. There's all these little molecules, you know, of metal, of wood, and so forth, all that the aircraft had been. And then they found an unidentified magnetic particle as well. And so basically they just had to deduce that the aircraft disintegrated for some unknown reason. And uh, two aircraft actually vanished in that same area, twin aircraft, sister aircraft, over a period of one year. And so that's just complete disintegration. Yeah, that's a strange one. Uh, what's a magnetic particle, though? An unexplained magnetic particle. Yes, what is that? Well, physically, it's a particle. <laughs> it's it's something they weren't expecting. I don't. I would never got that far into atomic physics, but just according to the bland dialogue of the report, it was an unexplained magnetic particle. So it's a magnetized particle that uh, was not, you know, to be identified as aluminum or anything else. It was simply. They, they have so many different tests that they can just determine yeah. what all this stuff is. So if they couldn't identify it, it was something worth mentioning. It sounds like it. Yeah, that's that was really strange. I was a little confused by that. I was like, what, what's a magnetic particle? I don't even know what that is. And then uh, talk about, I guess, what would have to be one of the most famous, if not the most famous, Bermuda Triangle case. That's the Flight 19 story, um, which seems like might have been the precursor to the big boom of uh, the Bermuda Triangle that, that subsequently came along in a couple decades' time. Yeah, that was basically what drew people's attention, because who would expect that an entire squadron of five aircraft could vanish? They took off on December 5, uh, 1945, for a routine patrol over the Bahamas. They were all qualified pilots, regardless of what some people have claimed. Naval pilots are trained in advanced overwater navigation, something that Army pilots don't have to be trained in. The Navy pilots also have to be trained in landing on carriers. So they were at the advanced stage of their training, and so they were just going to go out and uh, mock bomb a target at Bimini Island near Chicken and Hen Shoals, continue on to a Great Stirrup Cay where they would turn north, they would cross Grand Bahama, and then uh, at Great Sail Cay they would turn south southwest, actually, and they would cross Grand Bahama at its tip again, and then they would come back to Fort Lauderdale, to the Naval Air Station. So it was only about a two-hour and 15-minute flight over a very island-crowded area. The weather was fair, 67 degrees, with a gusty wind from the southwest up to 35 knots. And so uh, this is one of the strange ones. It was not a sudden vanishing. Uh, Taylor, the flight leader, later reported his compasses were not working. And he believed he took them off course following his compasses, which he thought were working at the time. And so now he was completely lost, and he realized that his compasses were the ones not working. Anyway, you have five pilots with a, uh, compasses, and still they they headed out over the Atlantic, uh, going northeast and then east, where they had a big disagreement about direction, and the flight turned and headed west. And according to all the radio dialogue, which I have from five different stations listening in, they continue to head west. And so the mystery is, why did that flight never cross the coast and come back to some base along Florida? Yeah. And the fact is, they never did. They never turned around, regardless of all the rumors that people say, oh, they just kept going back and forth. That is not true. The flight leader suggested they turn back around and head east, but he was no longer in command. A student pilot, quote-unquote, was had taken over the student pilot 
was named Edward Powers. He was actually senior to the instructor, Taylor. Uh, he outranked him by six months seniority, so he did continue to lead that flight west, and they still never made it. Now, there's many angles of this mystery. That's why I wrote a 127,000-word book on it. It's still coming out to be published. Uh, they oh, flew just on the Flight 19 story? Yes. Oh, wow. They flew into oblivion. It's been a long time in the works for publishing, but in a man manuscript form, this is what did inspire Sci-Fi Channel and NBC to do a two-hour special in 2005 to celebrate the 60th anniversary of the flight. Mm -hmm. And this also inspired E. Clay Shaw in Congress to uh, sponsor a resolution, which did pass on November 17, 2005, and passed 420 to 2, and that resolution honored all the men of Flight 19. And so I was very proud about that. The book wasn't even out yet, but it still inspired uh, a resolution in Congress from all the material I had in the book on Flight 19. Uh, Larry Landsman, who was the uh, who is the senior project director at Sci-Fi Channel, uh, pushed for this through Podesta Mattoon, and so NBC backed it and everything. There was a lot of publicity back then. Awesome, awesome. But anyway, the big mystery of Flight 19 is actually the fact that they got lost initially in the Bahamas. And they got out of the Bahamas because later a radio triangulation of their messages proved that they were in the Atlantic off of New Smyrna Beach. So how did they get out of the Bahamas without seeing a familiar landmark? And that is the big mystery. There's no way they could have overflown some of those huge islands and not seen them. Yeah, yeah. And even, just like you said, five planes, just the odds, you know, of uh, all five going down and disappearing is just astronomically bizarre. There's an awful lot to Flight 19, which is, it's it's a bizarre case, but it's it's way outside on its own. It's not simply something you encounter in any other case in the Triangle. There are a few others, a couple others that have long drawn out radio messages that completely confuse the towers, but uh, it's an individual aircraft. As in 1981, there was a pilot who kept signaling Mayday, and this went on for hours after his fuel supply was gone and he was heard in the Exuma Islands. And so how was he being heard after his fuel supply ran out? Well, we still don't know. Then in 1980, there was another one where a pilot took off from St. Thomas, was flying to Miami, reported himself off Miami five and a half hours later, and uh, he said he is confused, disoriented in clouds. He is going down to ditch. He was at 150 feet altitude already in clouds at 150 feet. And uh, Miami, of course, confirmed it was perfectly clear weather. They sent rescue planes out there, couldn't find a thing. Uh, he was not overheard by Miami when he sent his mayday. He was overheard by two airliners off Bermuda, a thousand miles away. Eleven hours later, he is picked up by Caicos Island Tower, which is about 600 miles from Miami, between St. Thomas and Miami. They picked it up clear. It was a young man's voice. His name was Peter Jensen. But it was a young man's voice, they said. They got the call letters correct, 9027Q. He was 10 minutes out, and he wanted permission to come in for landing, and he never showed up there either. So this was 11 hours after fuel starvation, and he, then he disappears there as well. Yeah, that's strange. So there seems to be definitely a time element, which we'll obviously talk about a little bit later on, uh, going on here with the triangle, especially with these messages that come in like way after the person shouldn't even be out there at all anymore. How many of those do you think you got in total uh, of strange messages that come back after presumably the person would already run out of fuel and stuff? 
Well, those are two cases right there. Uh, there's a few more. Yeah. I, I, there is a ship case, a boat case. I can't recall it off the top of my head. But it does happen with the last one, with the Peter Jensen case. It was not indicating like it was a, a delayed message. He said he was someplace where he could not have been. You know, he could not have been at Caicos Tower. You cannot land at an airport and refuel and not be clocked in or out. So how was he there at Caicos 11 hours after the fact? Yeah. So it's not a delayed message. It's basically he's not even supposed to be around. Yeah, yeah. It's an anomalous message, I guess. And let me see if there's any more flights. We kind of covered a lot of the big flights here. Is there any other ones you think we should talk about, or can I move on to the oceanic part? You can move on to the ocean. There's so many aircraft ones that I could keep going. So. Yeah. They're easier to document because they are all investigated. Boats, as surprising as it may be to many people, are not investigated when they vanish. They're just listed as overdue. There has to be some reason for the Coast Guard to investigate, and the NTSB does not investigate. And Lloyd's does not investigate the smaller stuff either, only the big freighters. So if you're on your own when you go out on a small boat. Keep that in mind, folks. Keep that in mind before you go out on your boat that you're uh, you're screwed if you go missing because no one's going to be looking for you. Um, They'll look for a while, but they won't investigate. <laughs> okay, there you go. People won't investigate. They might not even look because they don't know where to look. That's true, actually, yeah. Big ocean. If you don't show up, yeah. Let's talk about the oceanic elements to the triangle. Uh, first thing I wanted to ask you about was the Sargasso Sea, because this stood out to me as something really bizarre and, and unusual. Uh, is this unique to the ocean in itself, or these uh, Sargasso-type situations pop up elsewhere in the world? This is unique in all the world. Uh, all you know, currents of the ocean interlock at one point and have seas within our oceans. Uh, but only the Sargasso Sea is noted for its thick, uh, uh, thick growth of sargassum, is what it's called, I guess from Portuguese meaning grape. Little grape-like bladders keep the seaweed afloat, and so it's native to the area. It simply grows at sea, and when Columbus first came across it, he founded the area thinking land must be close by because seaweed's only seen around land. But no, the uh, the closest land is miles below, and it is simply an oval area in the center of the Atlantic in which uh, it's very calm because all the connecting, interconnecting currents around it uh, keep it much more calm, and the air is uh, much more calm there because it's warmer, and it does not get... Uh, it's the warm Gulf Stream really helps. It comes around and encircles the area, and so it's much more stable. And that's the area that was also called the doldrums or the horse latitudes by the Spanish because they would encounter these deadly calms there, and so for a sailing ship, that would be fatal. They would be becalmed for so long, they would have to kill and jettison their war horses. And that's why it's called the horse latitudes, because it was known for all the dead floating horses. Whew. That sounds gruesome. They had to conserve water that way. We could be right on the verge of solving a great mystery, the riddle of the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> Between skeleton men and flying saucers, I'd rather not know. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. It was all a plot to take advantage of the mysterious Bermuda Triangle legend about disappearing ships and planes. Now, does science, uh, have they tried to explain or have they explained, uh, you know, why the, the Sargasso Sea is the way it is? A lot, a lot of the explanation is because of the warm Gulf Stream interconnecting around it, and uh, so it is a bit of an isolated area within the much more tumultuous Atlantic. Uh, why a special growth would grow there is a bit different, because 
all currents will interlock. You know, there's the South, there's a sea within the South Atlantic as well, but it does not have Sargassum, and it's not noted for its calm. But it's, I think they largely think it is the uh, the Gulf Stream. I'm sure there's other factors. The location on the Earth, obviously, is crucial. And uh, But what's interesting is that the area is also known for power blackouts. So not only in the days of sail did the wind cut out, but in the days of electronic and uh, motors and so forth, sometimes they'll cut out. And you'll have motor vessels simply drifting. Oh, man, that would be nightmarish to be stuck out at sea like that. Before we get into some of the more contemporary or relatively contemporary stories uh, of seafaring incidents on the Triangle, let's talk a little bit about the whole Christopher Columbus elements to the Bermuda Triangle because he did document some experiences while sailing through there. And uh, one of our columnists at Penal of America, Richard Thomas, he did a piece on the Bermuda Triangle for the website, and he mentioned some of these Columbus stories, but uh, since you're the expert, I'd like to get your take on what sort of stuff did Columbus document while exploring uh, the Triangle and sailing through there? The compass northwested a few times, which means during the evening and morning reading when they brought it out, they would try and get a reading from the North Star, Polaris, and on three occasions, I believe it was 11 and a quarter degrees off, and this scared the heck out of the men, and Columbus made the excuse to the men that uh, there was nothing wrong with the compass. The North Star moved. <laughs> and so that calmed them down. But it did happen on three occasions. It's listed in the Diario uh, that Fray Bartholomew de la Casas wrote based on Columbus's log. And then there was the incident in the Sargasso Sea. He did note seaweed, how phenomenal that was to the men. And then the sea rose without any wind whatsoever, suddenly pitching them all about. Uh, that could have been a sea quake, I suppose, but that scared them to death. And then on the eve of discovering the New World, we know the famous story about seeing a light. Pero Gutierrez saw it first. It rose up, and then it hovered a bit, and then it it disappeared. And they sailed on to that point and found Watling Island. It's believed to be Watling Island, anyway. And so no one's ever explained what that strange light was that rose up, Alzava in Spanish, and then Levatava hovered there. Guys are going to say it was a UFO. There's, uh, people can say it. Well, they tried to say it could have been native fishermen out trying to track their catch with torches, but it was simply too far away for that to be that. Yeah. There could have been a bonfire on the beach, they thought, but uh, I do have Pero Gutierrez's, not Pero Gutierrez, uh, Bartholomew de Alcantara's Diario, and it's both in Spanish and English, and those are the words that it Alzava, which rose up. And then it levitava, so it you know levitated, it hovered. So it definitely uh, stands out from what was possible from technology of the day. Definitely uh, not too many explanations for that one. And then it disappeared, but it didn't say how. Did it disappear by rising up or did it just twink out? Ah, that's true. We could have used a little more detail, I guess, from the diario. Now, one case that stood out to me as particularly chilling was the Ellen Austin case from 1881. I guess talk a little bit about that one because it features uh, like a double disappearance of people, which was really freaky to me when I heard it. So uh, I'd like to have you sort of recount that story for the folks listening. And it was uh, it was first documented by the famous Rupert T. Gould, who was the, the famous British commander of the Navy who, who was always known for his commentaries on the BBC and his books about the unexplained oddities and enigmas and so forth are some of his books. And then it was later called into question in the 1970s. I think even Larry Cush in his book, uh, The Bermuda Triangle Mystery Solved, said it, there's no evidence for the 
ship at all. I'm actually quite proud of my research because I broke my back trying to find that incident. And indeed, at the time in 1880, there was no Ellen Austin sailing in 1881 when this is supposed to have occurred, August 1881. Mm -hmm. There was no ship Ellen Austin sailing, and Lloyd's confirmed that. However, I prodded them to look a little more, and they found out that the Ellen Austin had indeed been renamed the Meta. It was bought by German company, and so it was probably sailing under the name Meta at the time. And it was north of Bermuda when it found a ship, derelict. The captain ordered a prize crew to go aboard, and they were going to sail this in tandem with the Ellen Austin to Boston, I believe, was the destination, or New York. And so it would be a big salvage uh, bonus for them. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was a squall that later hit, and both vessels got separated. And the Ellen Austin came upon the, the schooner again, the vessel, and checked. And this time the prize crew had vanished. And so there's there's two different stories to it. Uh, the Ellen Austin just sailed away then and didn't want to have anything to do with a cursed ship. Uh, the other story is that they found the ship the first time, put the prize crew aboard, aboard and then uh, went sailing off and that the ship and the prize crew vanished, that it wasn't found a second time deserted. So the the second story is probably more true, but uh, we simply don't know. It's not that well documented after that point. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's quite an old story from 1881. I mean, that's nearly uh, 130 years at this point, so. Yeah, but it first appeared, I think, in 1944 when Rupert T. Gould still had some information on it. Okay. Talked about it in one of his books. And then uh, the other infamous ship story that I wanted to ask you about, and uh, like I said, we had a, a columnist up in all of America, Richard Thomas. He wrote about the Bermuda Triangle, and uh, I specifically asked him when I knew we were going to be doing the interview uh, if he had any questions that he wanted me to ask you. And he just uh, asked that I uh, inquire from you about the USS Cyclops, which he talked about in his column. Much like Flight 19, it's one of the more infamous uh, disappearances in the Triangle. It is, and I just finished my book on it recently. <laughs> Another one waiting to be published. It's called A Passage to Oblivion. And I got all the paperwork on this thing. I'm the first one to ever write a book. For some reason, no one ever decided to look into this case. I actually don't think it's a Bermuda Triangle case. Deep down, I think it was probably our version of Mutiny on the Bounty. Really? The United States Navy denies that we ever suffered a mutiny, but there's too much evidence to indicate that there was either mutiny or betrayal on that ship. Then it was uh, destroyed either by a few uh, few of those who conducted the mutiny or something else happened. It's really quite a mystery, but there are 2,000 papers on it at the National Archives and more at the State Department. And uh, the captain of that vessel was actually pro-German. He was a born German. He probably wasn't even an American. And he had a German men on board, and the ship was really at the nest of a lot of fifth columnists. Wow. And so it really is possible that we did suffer treason at one point in the Navy. Interesting. Now, that's really strange. I guess uh, for the folks who haven't heard the Cyclops story, I guess tell them the the uh, you know the mainstream version. Yeah, the mainstream version is that the ship uh, made an un unscheduled stop at Barbados on March 3, 1918. It was in passage from Rio de Janeiro to Baltimore with a cargo of manganese ore. And so Captain Worley 
ordered uh, the ship to stop at Barbados, where he took on more supplies and more coal. According to the consul there, Broncos Livingston, he found out that he that Worley didn't need any of it. He took an instinctive dislike to Worley based on his behavior, but he nevertheless paid $775 for the extra groceries. The ship set sail the next day, March 4, was not flying the homeward-bound pennant, turned south instead of north, and was never seen again, never came back to Baltimore. And so 309 men vanished, and a 520-foot ship with a very valuable cargo of manganese, which is needed for armaments production. And the consul there, Brockholz Livingston, did his investigation, found out that the men were complaining about the damn Dutchman, quote-unquote, who was their captain. <laughs> and that was an expression for a German back then, not a Hollander. A Dutchman was a German, a Deutschmann. And uh, he, there was rumors of an illegal execution at sea, of trouble en route hither from Rio. And it turns out in investigating Worley, he really was uh, something that popped out of the pages of sea lore from 100 years prior. He was just a brutal skipper. And so it is possible that that ship, although it did vanish technically in the Bermuda Triangle, right in the heart of it, it may have vanished for other reasons. It really may have been a mutiny or a betrayal to the Germans. Interesting. Wow. The Consul General of Brazil was aboard as well. Gottschalk, Alfred Lewis Moreau Gottschalk, and they investigated him and found out he was very pro-German as well. Now, you base your thoughts on that this is probably a mutiny based on all this information you've sort of uncovered and, and found out about just the pro-German sentiment of some of this group? Mm -hmm. And all the brutality of the captain against men. There were men who had sailed with him who testified then. They you know, were not on this voyage. They uh, described earlier voyages. The captain was a drunk. He was brutal. He was very pro-German. He was abusive. And he chased some of his officers around the deck at the end of the, with the pistol in his hand. Wow. <laughs> he was actually quite a character. He had a hell of a sense of humor. But he was, he was just, he was really our Captain Bly. I presume that there's no sign of these folks turning up anywhere in Germany or anything you like that. You would wonder. We did a big investigation of that in this country, and Admiral Robeson even went over there with the Armistice Commission for mm -hmm. Versailles, and he was, he tried to get information out of the Germans. I don't think they did much of an investigation. But during the closing days of World War One, there was always the big rumor that the Cyclops was seen at Kiel in Germany, and the men were in prisoner of war camps and so forth, and never found one of them. Although one, the Cyclops carried three prisoners on its way north. Mm -hmm. uh, one had committed a murder on a ship. The other two were involved. Uh, one was named Defoe, Barney Defoe. A man with that name was seen in Paris, and he said he lived in Long Beach. And so a Navy man just reported to his, his sister, who lived in Long Beach, and she went and talked to the family, and they insisted it couldn't be their son, or he would have come back or something. And she wrote, I have her letter, she wrote the government, and they did an investigation. And her brother was really quite sincere. He was in the Navy himself. He said he met Barney DeVoe in Paris. And it could be that that, that one of the prisoners survived. Wow. That one of the guys that had nothing to lose in a ship that mutinied. Now, he obviously would have been set free then instead of coming back to serve his life sentence. Yeah. But, he, but it was amazing that of all the men they could never prove that didn't die on board, it would be one who was a prisoner. Yeah, yeah, that is ironic. Although I guess, I suppose in, in the event of a mutiny, uh, 
you would you would try to uh, recruit the prisoners, I suppose, to help you out, I, I guess. And, yeah, the, it would be expected that a prisoner would survive if there was a mutiny. Yeah. Now, in all these cases of ships that have disappeared, and I think you mentioned one in passing uh, in the book, but I wanted to ask you, is there much information or are there many incidents as far as submarines going missing in the Bermuda Triangle? One vanished during the war. It could have been friendly fire in the uh, in the uh, Straits, Florida Straits. There is the famous case of the Scorpion, which disappeared for a while but then was later found. It, however, was uh, 400 miles from the Azores. The Thresher disappeared in 1963, but that was more or less off New England. So as for an actual a large submarine disappearing, I have I've never found a record. Scorpion is listed as a Bermuda Triangle case, but it really is way too far out. Okay. Uh, now, I know the the waters are pretty shallow around some of these islands and stuff. Now, what about divers and stuff like that? Are many divers go missing, or is that even harder to sort of track down? Well, yeah, a lot of divers go missing. Uh, who knows, you know, I can't recall the names, but I know of cases where a diver was just seen swimming off down to the deep by other divers, and he never came back. Wow. And they really weren't deep enough to have a rapture of the deep, but... Uh, Currents, I suppose. Maybe someone did get rapture of the deep. What's rapture of the deep? A chemical change in you when you go down too far and you're basically like you're on drugs. You just keep going. Oh, weird. You're completely happy that you're enraptured. You're, the chemical balance has changed in you because of the pressure and you were down too long and guys simply swim down to their death. Wow, that's just bizarre. And now, uh, in the book, you kind of uh, lament the difficulty in establishing a boat disappearance, and you use disappearance in quotes, and uh, I presume that's based on the information you get from the NTSB and all the various... Uh, Coast Guard. Yeah, excuse me, the uh, Coast Guard and, and, you know, all the various information you've gotten and stuff like that. Uh, I guess talk a little bit about that difficulty in, in establishing a boat disappearance. You kind of already sort of mentioned it, how they don't really... Uh, say disappeared or anything, they just say uh, past due, I think is what you said. Overdue. Overdue. So I guess let's talk a little bit about the difficulty in establishing disappearances. Law requires that an aircraft file a flight plan, at least they're supposed to. And so it tells the authorities where it's taking off and where it will be going and how long, you know, what route it's taking. A boat does not necessarily file a boat plan. People just leave the harbor. And maybe they've told relatives and family you'd have to investigate to find out. But, you know, we're going to be taking a month cruise to here or, you know, then maybe they decide to go somewhere else. They decide to switch their course. And how do you really plan that? I mean, where – and if they don't come back, uh, it's usually the owner, owner's family or maybe a coworker who realizes he's not come back to work at the scheduled time. And so when did the when did the boat vanish? And where? You know, this could be months Yeah. after the fact. There are some boats that have turned up. The, they just decided to take a crew somewhere else, and they were posted missing or overdue, and sure enough, they pop up a couple months later at a far distant port and say, oh, we've been fine the whole time. And so the Coast Guard really can't expend millions of dollars looking for these. Yeah. Because they, they could be just, you know, basically drunk at an island somewhere. <laughs> it does happen. Yeah. And there's just too many boats out there. When I asked the Coast Guard, the information officer in Washington, when I first began investigating, we're talking back 1991, 1992, mm-hmm. I said, why don't you investigate these? And he said, because so many go over the horizon with a new name. It's, it's simply not feasible. They suspect uh, boat jacking, hijacking Yeah. Uh, most of the time. Oh, really? Like pirates and that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. So there have been cases of that. What was it? The 
I forget the vessel's name now, that uh, disappeared in 1976. Then was found in 1982 trafficking drugs. Oh, boy. The the people, it, so it, it had been the victim of piracy, and the people were obviously killed, and it was taken over for piracy. That happened recently with the Joe Cool last year. Yeah, yeah, I think there was also, uh, I don't know, I don't think it was in Bermuda, but there was a, a story recently, like within the last couple of weeks of a, Pirates taking over, I think, a Somali ship or something like that. It's quite a problem over there, I guess. Now, in all the cases you've investigated and all the, all the research, I guess you could say, that you've done, could you put, like, uh, an approximation on the number of planes and boat disappearances total uh, that you've uncovered and that could be attributed to the Triangle that you think are legitimate, true Triangle cases? From the 1940s to World War II, I would say 200 or more aircraft. Uh, could be 1,000 boats. Wow, and that's from now until back to the World War II, you say? Mm-hmm. Wow, a thousand boats. So 75 years, maybe. 65, 75 years. Uh, now, prior to World War II, is that just uh, the lack of information, you think, or is it that the traffic picked up so much, especially with flights? I mean, obviously, there weren't planes in the air. Uh, I don't know exactly when planes started flying over the Bermuda Triangle, but I'm sure it was, let's just say, you know, 1900 or something. Well, there wasn't a lot of pleasure flight before. Pleasure flights came with the, the flowering of the American middle class in the 50s. Uh, before that, you had a lot of military flights or scheduled commercial flights going out there to the islands, but not as much, you know, weekend wing flyers. Mm-hmm. Honey, let's go get the plane out. Yeah. And that was the big deal. It really became the big deal in the 50s. In the, in, it started with the 50s, and then with a much more prosperous nation in the 60s, you know, a lot of guys had planes. Piper liked to brag that they made their their new Piper aircraft to fit the new hairstyles for women, the big beehive. <laughs> I, have, I have old advertisements where women are sitting there in their beehive hairdos, and our aircraft can accommodate you for your weekend flying. And so that's it's obvious that, you know, there's going to be a lot more aircraft then because simple mathematic probability tells us more are going to disappear when there's more flying out there. Yeah. And that's largely the reason why prior to World War II, there's not much... The records are very scant, but there simply wasn't a lot of flights out there. Okay. But World War II, boy, there was a lot of aircraft that vanished. But they would be military. Ventura's on patrol, uh, Avengers, Douglas Dauntless, Wildcats, P-40s. Since there were so many military planes that went disappearing, does the government, they sort of, I'm sure, just take a very debunkerish approach, I guess you could say, to the whole triangle. I'm sure there's nothing in the official doctrine that says, you know, it's a danger area or anything like that, right? No, there's there's what military men on their own might think and what the official stance is are always two different things. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the government will recognize the area has special, unique dangers that will attribute these to the currents of the Gulf Stream, to uh, it, well, it used to attribute it to the agonic line of the magnetic field, and stuff like that. The government's official opinion was drawn up by the Coast Guard and was something like 30, 40 years old until the past few years in which they finally updated it and took out some very passe and impossible excuses. Uh, and fortunately, they did contact me first, a chief petty officer at the St. Petersburg branch of the PR. They said he told me they were going to think about updating this and he wanted my input. And, uh, of course, I had an article on my website kind of mocking that old Coast Guard opinion. Yeah. Because they still blamed it on the agonic line, and that's merely a fancy way of saying this is where the uh, the North Pole and the magnetic North Pole align. 
then that really is not going to do anything, and that moves westward with time. And so the agonic line is now in the Gulf of Mexico outside of the triangle, and they were still trying to blame disappearances on the agonic line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is simply, it's a navigational thing, really. It's not something that really, you know, is a tangible thing that exists. But a navigator must compensate for the compass will always point, you know, to magnetic north and not true north because they're 1,500 miles apart. And so there, there's two places in the world where they align, and that was one of them, where you don't have to compensate. Now, we've sort of established all these various amazing and, and strange and stunning disappearances of boats and flights and stuff like that. Before we get into those who've lived through it, I'm going to presume that when the story exploded in the 70s and stuff like that, that then all of a sudden people were going there to investigate. Did anything strange come out of any investigations into the area uh, when the boom happened? No, I don't think a lot of people did go to investigate. Oh, really? It's You can't, you know, millions travel through it all the time. You can't avoid it. But some people did do some investigations. There was a Russian scientist, Dr. A.J. Yelkin who investigated some of the magnetic phenomenon. He suggested it had to do with moon phases. There was Dr. David Zink, who was famous for investigating Atlantis. He noted the magnetic problems that Bimini and the Bahamas had. Then there was a completely independent study by two scientists. I think one was Leal was his last name. And this, I got wind of it years later from another Russian book by Dr. Vladimir Lorin, and this had to do with what's called the Western Atlantic Transition Geomagnetic Anomaly. And what is that? Well, uh, scientists discovered in their 60s that there is a magnetic phenomenon along the continental shelf, and they attribute it to uh, magmas or silicates and so forth coming up from the from the mantle and oozing up in the seafloor, and they may be charged. And so they're conducting their own electric charge, and they are causing, therefore, magnetic disturbances, and that may explain why the compasses sometimes go wacky when you fly over the area mm -hmm. or point to another direction. There, That's probably what is causing the the compasses simply to point in another direction sometimes, that you have this material oozing out along the continental shelf. Yeah. But can that cause all the other phenomenon? It's unlikely. Yeah, as far as the debunking of the triangle goes, it seems like it kind of falls into the UFO mystery in a way where you may be able to debunk one case, but uh, your explanation fails to debunk all the other ones, or you know what I mean? It seems like mm -hmm. it's very a lot of cherry-picking going on. Speaking of that, let's talk just a bit here about Lawrence Cush and his book, which I guess was probably the big debunkery of uh, the Bermuda Triangle, and uh, you do a pretty good job of sort of setting the record straight as far as why his debunking may not be all that and a bag of potato chips. So I guess talk a little bit about Lawrence Cush and the book uh, Bermuda Triangle Mystery Solved. Well, the weakness of the book is, one, that debunkers are not proactive. They do not do research on their own. They go over the research and claims of others and then give you a different a point of view on it. And so it's, it's a nice, debunking is a nice way of saying scoffing or mocking, which is basically what, he was not his intention. He was very frank that he was out to explain, uh, you know, to document first. The Bermuda Triangle was very interested in it. And then Harper and Rose, you know, said they thought they had a big explanation for it here. And so they put the title on it, Bermuda Triangle Mystery Solved, and that really sold the book. The problem is you cannot reconcile the title with the contents. He investigated about 57 incidents. Uh, most of them were from newspaper reports, which really are 
highly inaccurate. He had about five or six accident reports, none of which could solve the case involved. Then he had some obscure cases that really didn't even, I, I hadn't heard of, and then he admitted he couldn't even find documentation for them. So it was really, uh, the book, I mean, I don't, you know, you can get the book. Certainly I don't knock people getting it. But the title is really what is objectionable because it did not solve. You read that book and it did not solve the phenomenon at all. It didn't even solve an awful lot of the cases that he discussed. Yeah. So I think it's more or less it was a PR stunt because the title is simply so different from the contents. Yeah, yeah. I see that uh, Lawrence Cush, he's still alive. He's still around. Have you talked to him at all since you've become the big Bermuda Triangle guy? No, we are not on communicative scale, uh, level. <laughs> Uh-oh. Is that, that sounds kind of nefarious. Does that mean that <laughs> is he not a fan of Gian Gassaro, or is it just... I'm the- sure I'm sure he's not. I'm sure he's a very... I know many people that know him, of course, when TV interviews me, which has been far too much as far as I'm concerned, they always interview him. And I find that quite ironic, you know, not that, you know, not that there's anything bad about it, but that his book is over 30 years old. And it's quite dated, and yet my information is very recent. And it's always been uh, part of the bane of research that they always say, well, what, what about this, you know, this, solved, this book that solved it? And you have to tell them, well, it's 30 years old, and it's really not relevant today. But uh, any, most any television show, especially History Channel, they'll always interview him. And in one, in one documentary, they actually propped his book up real big in the end, and then mine small, you know, encouraging people more or less to think this is all solved 30 years ago. Oh, man. Although the producer told me his personal opinion, <laughs> which which I cannot repeat. I'm going to presume that it was positive on, on your end, then. It was positive on my end. Okay. And then I wanted to ask you now, my, my memory is cloudy here. We're kind of talk a little bit about the debunkering or or the uh, the skeptical takes on Bermuda Triangle, why you don't think that they hold up. I remember there being a special on Basic Cable within the last, you know, five years or something like that. They blamed a lot of this on methane hydrates and, and uh, bursting of methane underwater that sunk ships or something like that. Um, I'm sure you've heard all about the methane argument, so I guess talk a little bit about that because it got a lot of play when the special was on. It's all gas. <laughs> it really is. I wonder if that was Bruce's documentary. I was with the producer, and he was really hip to uh, to uh, pursue that. A methane gas, uh, it has to go through... Uh, thousands of feet of sediment. It has to go through thousands of feet of water. And it would have to hit, the, the ship would have to be traveling right over the spot at the given time. And then it's still debatable whether it could sink it. Methane molecularly changes the water so it's not as dense, cannot support the ship, and so the ship simply, you know, sinks. That's what methane can do. A rig, an oil rig, did drill into a methane bed and it did go down. But it was sitting right on top of it, and there were helicopters flying around filming this for news cameras, for the news channels, and uh, and they were unaffected. So, you know, methane can never explain all the aircraft disappearances. Most of the methane beds are off the Carolinas, and that's not where most of the disappearances even occur. But you hear the ocean flatulence theory quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. It seems like the one that gets a lot of play lately in the last few years. Uh, and like I had pointed out, sort of tying it in with the UFO thing, just because you can say... The methane thing takes down the ships. That has no relevance to the plane disappearances, so, you know, you're... It can cause a ship to sink. That doesn't mean it caused any of the disappearances in the triangle. Mm-hmm. You know, it can, but did it. Exactly. Just like swamp gas can be confused for a UFO. <laughs> all UFO swamp gas. 
I was just looking here at sort of the arguments against the triangle, but they're all sort of like human error and, and sort of stuff, like I said, that, that may apply to one thing but can't, can't be sweepingly applied to all of them. Would you say that's the general way in which the debunkers go about sort of... Uh, you know, it's just pilot screwed up, shipmaster didn't know what they were doing, or, you know, something natural. There were unexplained mini canes or sea quakes or piracy or whatever, something like that. And if you have, if you know the details of the incidents, you'll know how that really can't happen because what can ha what can cause a ship to disappear, what can cause a plane to disappear, are two different things altogether. If you explain all the aircraft disappearances, you cannot explain the boat disappearances because you know if a pilot it gets lost and he runs out of fuel, well he he's going to crash, he's going to ditch and sink. If a boatmaster does that. Well, his boat is still going to be floating on the ocean. Exactly. You know, he's not going to sink right away. He's going to be lost. But why? Why not the? Why don't the radios work? Why don't they signal for help? Why no ELTs? Why no EPIRBs? Now I'm not sure how many cases you have with radar reports, but from what it sounded like, from the ones I read in the book, they're here and then they're gone within seconds. The time of disappearance, if you can sort of chart it based on the radar, is is you know. 40 seconds or something like that, right? In, in some of the older ones, yeah, radar scope arm can go faster now so that uh, an aircraft can disappear within 10, 12 seconds. Wow. You probably know this, I hope. Uh, <laughs> if a plane's like up in the air, you know, let's say this is a non-triangle related disappearance or, or crashing or downing, if you will. If a plane's going down, would it still appear on the radar like, uh, or would it altogether disappear if it's, you know, crashing into the ocean? It should uh, appear on another sweep of the arm before it disappears. I've known of cases of convective activity that caused an aircraft to explode in midair or implode, and uh, the next sweep of the radar showed several pieces out there. So it had a few pieces of the aircraft. That's how they knew it exploded. Ah, uh, okay. But yeah. there are cases where an aircraft, is, in one case, was at uh, 27,000, 28,000 feet ascending, and then the next sweep of the scope, it was gone. There was nothing caught coming down to the ocean or anything. And this was a triangle disappearance? Mm-hmm. This was a 1991 a Grumman jet. Oh, wow. That's pretty recent. And, uh, yeah, see, that's kind of like what the gist of what the question I was getting at or the point I was trying to make in that. Yeah, the, the radar, when they disappear in radar, it's just gone in a sweep of the scope. Yeah, that sort of uh, cancels out a more mainstream or prosaic uh, answer for why they disappeared them. Usually there's one incident where the, the pilot was doing some really bizarre things. And the tower contact, the guy was so mad, the tower controller said, well, you can't make those turns without telling me. And the pilot didn't even know he was doing it. And then the aircraft disappeared for 30 minutes and reappeared again and then rose up and then vanished and was gone. So there are a few cases like that. Wow. When the tower controller was yelling at the guy and the pilot responds, he doesn't even know what he's talking about. He thinks, he thinks everything's fine. That's bizarre. That was in 1999, May 12, 1999, that happened to one. Wow. See, like, that's even more recent and, and, and spooky. Now, that sort of uh, actually is the perfect segue into the next sort of section I want to talk to you about, and that's uh, those who have lived through it. You have just an amazing chapter in the book about those who live to tell the tale. How many, roughly, would you say, people you've heard from or, or stories you've collected from people that, you know, seem to have been in the mix of the triangle phenomenon and managed to get out of it. We're going to end the first installment right there and leave you waiting on that cliffhanger until next week's episode. Stay tuned for a little more on that in the official preview here at the end of the program. Big, big thanks to Gian Kassar for coming on the show and giving us so much time. You're going to hear more from him next week. But until then, you can find out more on his book, 
and his research at the website www.bermuda-triangle.org. Fantastic site. Check it out. Since we're right up against the clock here this week, we are going to forego BOA Audio listener feedback. I've read about six in the last couple weeks anyway, so we'll uh, take a pass in the interest of time constraints this week and bring it back next week. If you want to be a part of BOA Audio listener feedback, here's how you do it. Three ways. Either go to Banal of America and click the contact button, or simply write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. And the third option, which you'll be hearing a little bit more about in a moment, join and post at the official BOA message board, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E dot com. Speaking of which, I teased this last week at the end of the episode. This week, I'm going to reveal all to you, the great folks who tune in to the very end of the program. This year, for the fourth annual BOA Audio Holiday Special, we're offering all the great members of the USAV.com the opportunity to be a part of this year's festivities in the vault section of the forum. There is a thread titled, Ask Stanton Friedman. And all the different members of the forum have the opportunity to present their own question for the father of modern-day ufology on the BOA Audio Holiday Special coming up in a couple weeks. So, if you're listening to this and you're not a part of the forum, but you want to take part in this really cool opportunity to be a part of BOA Audio in a big way, here's how you do it. You go to Banal of America, click Forum, or simply go to www.theusofe.com. T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E dot com. Join up. It's totally free. From there, go to the vault and punch your question in, and we'll throw it into the rotation for the BOA Audio Holiday Special Questions portion of the program. The deadline to post the questions in the thread is December 10th, but to be honest, I'll probably extend that by a few more hours because we're not taping the interview until December 11th in the afternoon, so you got a little bit of time here if you're listening to the show on the evening of the 8th or during the 9th and 10th. Why are we doing this? Well, it is the 4th annual special. I want to add a little twist to the proceedings, and I also want to give back to the really awesome folks who are part of the US of E by giving them the opportunity to be a part of the special. They are the hardcore BOA supporters. They are some of my great friends. And it's going to be awesome to have them a part of BOA Audio History in the annual special. And I want all the other folks who are listening here at the end of the program to feel free to take part as well. Join up at the forum. Newcomers are always welcome. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to have you on there. And if you just want to join, post your question and bail and never return, I'll totally understand. I'm not going to hold it against you. That's fine. Do what you want to do. But it's the Ask Stanton Friedman Opportunity. For the fourth annual holiday special, check it out at www.theusofe.com. That's all I got to say about that. Up next, it is the thanks portion of the show. Let me run down the list of the outstanding BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, and Richard Thomas from Wales. I plug this stuff every week. You got to check out their columns at Banal of America. If you're only listening to the audio show, you're really missing out on a wealth of great insights and information from the BOA staff. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, always something cooking from the devious minds of BOA. Check them out at binallofamerica.com. 
trust me, you don't want to miss them. We say it here week in and week out. It's been all of America.com. B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com. Make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. We're at that point every week, my friends, where we pass around the basket here in hopes that folks will make a donation to BOA. The economy is in the tank. It is crapping all over the place. I know a lot of folks are just scraping by and can't just make a donation to an underground esoteric audio show. But at the same time, I know there are some folks who do have some disposable income and can help us out. I turn to those folks now. We need you. We need your support. How do you support us? That's simple. You go to banalofamerica.com or the BOA Audio Archive page. Click the PayPal button and make a donation. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards keeping BOA and BOA Audio up and running and freely available for all of our great listeners and readers the world over. Next week on the program, I bet you can guess who it's going to be. It's going to be Gian Kassar, of course, part two of two, talking all about the Bermuda Triangle. We're going to get into even more crazy stuff involving the Triangle. We're going to start by talking about what you heard us tease here at the end with the cliffhanger. Those who have entered the Triangle's domain had bizarre experiences and lived to tell the tale. Fascinating stuff, scary stuff, terrifying stuff. Just amazing stories of triangle near misses that you're going to love. We're going to discuss the electronic fog, which is one of the telltale signs of triangle troubles, the Devil's Triangle of the South China Sea, the surprisingly under-discussed Great Lakes Triangle, tangential esoteric elements that have been tied to the triangle, such as the Atlantic Ridge, and theories of worldwide catastrophe around 4000 BC. We'll cover the Bimini Road, Edgar Cayce's Atlantis predictions, the Indian Vimanas, Martian and Lunar Anomalies, and the ultimate esoteric four-letter word, UFOs. On top of all that, we're going to get Gian's opinion on if it's possible to study the Triangle. The long-term positive byproduct of the Triangle's disappearances, Gian's role in the resurgence of Triangle popularity, the origins of his unique name, and his impending book on Bigfoot, that part alone is an amazing section of the interview, my friends. You're going to definitely want to hear that. Plus, as always, tons and tons more. Believe it or not, I just scratched the surface with that marathon preview. If you thought this episode was packed with details, next week's episode is even more packed as BOA Audio emerges from the fog that is the Bermuda Triangle. Tune in, check it out. You don't want to miss this episode, my friends. We wrap up the Bermuda Triangle talk with Gian Kassar. And on that note, I close the book on this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening, my friends. Have an excellent week. You'll be hearing from me next week, of course. Until then, this is Tim Benall, signing off.